of you like to sleep and you need nine hours of sleep, and that's you, I just would love to shake your hand before you leave. But for others of us, maybe seven hours is a good night of rest. And so if we break down the 168 into kind of compartments, we have about 50 hours that goes towards sleep. We have 50 hours, give or take, that goes towards work, maybe 40, maybe more. We have 15 hours of just driving and running errands and just the nature of living in an area that's not localized, that we're all over the place doing different things. We have, you know, whether it's making food, prepping, cleaning up, laundry, yard work, call it 10 hours. We have social media and sports and shows, call it 15 hours. And then then you have faith. Like, if you spend an hour a day with God, and then including Sunday, call it two hours, it's about eight hours that we spend focused with either our Bibles open or praying intentionally. That's Eight hours of the 168 hours. That's 5% of your life that's focused on faith in an intentional way. But 95% of our lives are doing many other things. Most of our life is about the other stuff, which means that most of life is mundane. Most of life is not glamorous. Most of God, life feels earthy and feels just kind of meh. And if we don't get an understanding of how God desires to use the 95% as a part of his invitation to follow him, we're going to live a compartmentalized life very confused on how to allow faith to really infect and, and uh, engage the rest of our lives. See, part of the hope is to Help us see this morning the validity of the 95%. To see purpose and calling and meaning in the majority, the vast majority of our life. See, if we don't get our bearings for how God is inviting us to to use the 95% of our life, it will become a cancer, a virus to our journey of discipleship. So this is critical if we want to tear down the wall of of this divide between sacred and secular, spiritual and secular. So this morning, I want to talk about how we ought to approach the 95% of our life. I want to consider this, this kind of title this morning, that we want to rule by glorifying God in the mundane. We want to rule, we're invited to rule, redeeming our rules this series. And this morning, I want to talk about glorifying God in the mundane. The word spiritual is an interesting word. Its origins are surprising, and they're surprisingly not biblical. So if you read through the two-thirds of the Old Testament from Genesis to to Malachi, we don't see one reference to the word spiritual. Two-thirds of the Bible, nowhere is this word to be found. Why? Because in the Hebrew worldview, which is the worldview of Genesis to Malachi, in the Hebrew worldview, all of life is spiritual. And see, we have this divide. We feel it in all kinds of ways, this divide of spiritual and this divide of secular. And so we have our secular life and then we have our spiritual life. And some of us uh, divide that in more ways than we should. But we have to tear down that wall because that's never the design of God. The God that's in the Bible, the God whose name is Yahweh, he gives us this understanding that all of life is meant to be engaged with him. So Plato came along and and created a worldview that separated the spiritual from the material. And slowly that began to form its way into the church. Now we see spiritual, 
and we see material. We separate the two realities. But that was never the design. In reality, the Jewish, the great Jewish hope wasn't to die and get away from the material. The great hope was resurrection. The great hope was that God was going to come and he was going to restore the earthy material of this world. He was going to bring life where death was. He was going to bring his kingdom. Let your kingdom come and your will be done. So to be spiritual isn't to do spiritual things. Because doing spiritual things doesn't exist in the eyes of God. In the eyes of God, there is no compartment of work that is spiritual and work that is not spiritual. So what happens when what you do in your job description is mostly mundane and the 95%? I want to engage that this morning. I have two things I just want to consider with you this morning. First, I want us to understand what the Bible says about the glory of God. What does the Bible say about the glory of God? There's a, a vast, I didn't do a study on every time the word is used, but it's throughout the Old and the New Testament. So the glory of God, what is it? It's redundant throughout. The, the word comes from this word kavad, and it means the, either the presence of God or the splendor of God. It oftentimes can mean both. Either the presence of God, God's presence, or it is the it is the splendor or the beauty of God. This word is used everywhere in Exodus. You read through Exodus, you find it consistently throughout. So after Pharaoh hardened his heart multiple times, God gave him over to what he wanted. We talked about this last week when it comes to wrath. That God sometimes will give someone over. This is what you want. You want destruction? Have it. It's the wrath of God giving us over to what we want. And so Pharaoh, he hardened his heart. And so God said, is that what you want? Then you can have it. And so God continued to harden his heart. We see that in Exodus 14 where it says, verse 4, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And you Fast forward just a few verses in verse 17 of Exodus 14. It says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. He's referencing the beauty and the splendor and the honor of his name. You fast forward a handful of uh, chapters to Exodus 24, and we read this, that the glory of the Lord, in verse 16 and 17 of Exodus 24, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a divine devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. There's a combination here of both the beauty of God and the presence of God coming down upon Mount Sinai. And fast forward a few chapters later, we see that Moses asks of God, he says, show me your glory. He says, I want to see the splendor and the beauty of of who you are. And so in Exodus 33:22 it says, "And while my glory passes by, I will pitch you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by." So the Exodus is filled with this this word glory. 
both the presence of God being manifested before people and the beauty and the splendor of God being seen and experienced in the hearts of people. So you fast forward generations. Generations come and generations go. And finally, we we, uh, see this guy, we meet this guy, Solomon, who builds this temple, the place of the dwelling of God. We see his presence fill the temple and the beauty of God experience. I want to read it with you in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1 through 3. We'll see this word glory multiple times. It says, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, this is after the, the temple was completed, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, their, to the Lord saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So you see the manifest presence of God. You have the omnipresence that just exists. In this moment, whether you feel it or not, God is here. The omnipresence of God. There's moments when the manifest presence is revealed. And in this moment, that's what happens. It's like the curtain of our life is removed and they saw the reality, the true reality, the true north of the creator showing himself before them. They respond, bowing down in reverence and terror. And the beauty and the majesty of God, they worshipped him. So we see the manifest presence of God in this moment. We see the omnipresence of God everywhere. We see it that God's glory is in every square inch of the universe. Abraham Heschel says that there's not a square inch in the whole world where he doesn't say mine. That God exists everywhere. He rules over everything. He rules over the mountain ranges and the ocean depths and the gathering of the saints and our car on the way to work as you clear off the table in the evening in tears and in laughter. He is there. Everything is moving towards this, this moment where the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's where this thing is moving. The awareness of God's glory everywhere. So we could take this and, and assume, this is, it would be natural to just assume that there's places where God's glory is and God's glory isn't. But then we get in the New Testament, and there's just a little bit of clarity that's provided for us. Two passages in particular I want to consider with you as we consider a, a biblical understanding of the glory of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, some of you might know, one or two of you might have it tattooed on you. Bless you for that. Maybe an idea for those that are looking for a new tattoo. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the what? The glory of God. Whether you eat, mundaneness of eating, the mundaneness of drinking, or whatever you do in between, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do. How do we remove the spiritual chasm when we want to remove the chasm of the spiritual and secular divide by allowing a verse like this to, to knock it down. And whatever you do, there's space and opportunity to glorify God. And then First Peter 4, oh boy, 
Peter says this. He says, each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, everybody say everything. In everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Nowhere is there referencing going to church. Nowhere is there referencing worship. It's in the mundaneness of life in serving and speaking and engaging one another that we have this opportunity to glorify God. So even Peter is speaking for the church to tap into how we're wired and to do that well, whatever you do. So all work matters to God. All work that develops, all work that cares, all work that supports, all work that creates. See, part of Jesus' invitation is to follow him, in part learning how to bring glory to God in our work and in all of our life, in that 95% of our life. He is inviting us to learn how to do that. And that is a part of the discipleship invitation for us. And so that's an understanding of this idea of the glory, the reality of the glory of God. And so the second thought I want to just consider with you this morning is that we are invited to glorify God in what we do and in how we do it. In what we do and in how we do it. This is how we flesh out the glory of God. The first would be considering what we do. In Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, just nestled into the beginning of this profound letter to the church in Rome. We read this. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So creation glorifies God and what creation is already doing. So the sun speaks to the glory of God. How? By being the sun. In the way that the sun is the sun, it is bringing glory to God. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. My mom is a sunrise and sunset addict, right, mom? Sorry. I will fix that before the next service. I'm, I'm sorry. So my mom is a sunset addict. When we go to the beach uh, as a family with my parents, we'll, like, after dinner, like, there is a, my mom who's, like, misdo everything. She becomes one track minded. Like I need to get to the beach to see the sunset. There's just something in her that just draws her to seeing the sunset. And I got to be honest, it's rubbing off on me. I'm starting, like I drive the kids to school. They go to school in Kennesaw. And so we're, we're driving up 75. And so the sun rises to the right. That's why I added the sunrise because I'm, I'm enjoying the sunrise too. But I, I'm beginning to see that there's something about the sun and just being the sun. It's doing nothing more than just being the sun that causes my heart to worship. 
There's something profound about the sun just being the sun that points to something greater than the sun, the author of the sun, and it stirs my heart to see that there's a creative creator who every morning, it's different, and it causes our hearts to worship, and just the sun being the sun, it's not leading us in the doxology. It's not leading us in the Lord's Prayer. It's just being the sun, and in it being the sun, it awakens worship in my heart. There's glory about this. In the same way, plants, plants just being plants are actually, in being a plant, bringing glory to God. And and what they do, and just what they do, it's not spiritual and secular. They're just being a plant. They're producing what they are designed to produce. And in doing that, there's something about it that reflects to the fact that there's a creator. That's what Romans 1 is telling us. See, glory is about beauty. Glory is about presence. And we glorify God by by reshaping the raw materials of this world in such a way for those with eyes to see, making visible God's presence and beauty. See, we bring glory to God by being image bearers. We are image bearers. And just like the sun brings glory to God by being a son. Plant brings glory to God by being a plant. We, as image bearers, bring glory to God by being image bearers. We, as image bearers, tap into this by reshaping the raw materials of this world in such a way that people see the beauty behind the beauty. It means this, and some work that you do And again, we're trying to point back to every one of us has a unique gift and calling. We talked about that last week. That's unique. That God's worked you in a specific way, created you in a unique way, intricately wove you together in a specific way for a purpose. And as we walk that out together, some of our work and what we do directly reflects our creator. And the majority of us, the work we do indirectly reflects reflects our creator. Some of us directly uh, reflect our creator by maybe you're called to write a book or to, to preach or to counsel or to raise your kids to love God. That is a direct way that you reflect your creator. But most of, most of us do it in an indirect way. Not in a direct way where you're explicitly in what you do, you're, you're putting crosses on things, but in an indirect way, you are ruling and you're cultivating and you're keeping Just like a plant isn't directly pointing to the creator, but in its indirect way, it is reflecting that. This might be the most important I say in the first three weeks of this series. That there is direct work that glorifies God, and there is indirect work that glorifies God. And so for some of you, you need to embrace the fact that you might be called in such a way that your work is indirect. And that is not a subordinate way to glorify God. That in all of us, we are uniquely called to glorify God in what we do. John Mark Comer says this. He says, our job is to make the invisible God visible, to mirror and mimic what he is like to the world. We can glorify God by doing our work in such a way that we make the invisible God visible by what we do and how we do it. So glorifying God isn't the same thing as making disciples. We're going to talk about that next week. But what you do can glorify God. Because in what you do, there is intrinsic value. There's not a devaluation of work that is not direct in its reflection. You can call within the cultural mandate, or your call in the cultural mandate and your work has significant value. 
John Stott tells us of the kind of work we're called to. He says the expenditure of energy, manual or mental or both, and the service of others, which brings fulfillment to the worker, benefit to the community, and glory to God. It's this blend of working together, some in direct ways, some in indirect ways, that brings glory to God in what we do. I mentioned Eric Little um, several weeks ago when we did a series on Sabbath. This individual was the flying Scotsman. That's what he was known for. He's a famous movie from years and years ago, but he was unwilling to do sports on Sunday. He was this, this mecca of the sport that he was moving towards as a Christian man was this 1924 Olympic Games, and it was held on Sunday, and he chose not to run that race, but he also found that within his running, there was something intrinsically holy and beautiful, and he was seeking to tap into that part of being an image bearer. He said, I believe that God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. So our goal is to learn that what we are doing can glorify God because of the value that it supplies to support our call and the cultural mandate. Which is why Colossians 3.23 matters to us, where it says, so we work heartily for the Lord and not for men. So your motivation isn't to work hard when your boss is around, but to be lazy when he's not, or lazy when she's not. Your motivation is that in your line of work, you put your heart into it and do it with excellence and with skill. So if you're an engineer, make the best drawings, bridges, and structures as you're able. As a designer, make the most beautiful and detailed design of art as you are able. As musicians, skillfully craft beautiful music that honors God, and not just in always having to be Christian music, but allowing your gift to be expressed in that way. As teachers, inspire and create content that causes your students to love to learn. And sales and real estate allow the people you are selling to to know their value not by wringing them dry, but helping them find what they are looking for with the product that you're selling. As managers, motivate and support and care, letting your employees not just feel like they are a means to an end for you, but valuable image bearers that you are leading and serving. As moms and dads, allow your best work to be done in the investment and support of the kids that have been given to you. They only have one mom. They only have one dad. And engage them in that way. See, we're invited to learn how to glorify God in what we do. In the 16th century, um, Martin Luther came along and and wreaked havoc in what was happening in that day, revolutionized the moment that he was in. He bucked against the religious giant of that day, and he revolutionized the life of the individual in both the public and the private sphere. According to Luther, one did not have to be a priest to be close to God. One could fully serve God at home or in ordinary life. And he restored the original call that the early church was given and empowered someone like Dorothy Sayers to say this in the 19th century. I mentioned this last week, but it's worth saying again. That the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him to not be drunk and disorderly in the leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. 
What the church should be telling him is this. The very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should be making good tables. So whatever you do, and the 95%, do what you do for the glory of God. So it's in what you do, but it's also in how you do it. So in what way or manner should we do this? Should this be done? So as image bearers, what is our design? What is our call? We reflect God. And so the answer to the question, how do we do this, is by looking at God. If we're image bearers, what are we imaging? And so we look to God. God works hard. So we should. God brings order out of chaos. So should we. God is joyful and eager and proactive. So should we show up early for our shift, be cheerful and not await, volunteer and serve when needs arise. See, God is honest and true. So we should be full of honesty and truth, even when, not if, when it means less money. As image bearers, as co-heirs with Christ, we represent God. So this is going to feel super elementary to you, but it needs to be said. So much of the how and how we glorify God comes down to our attitude. Nobody wants to respond on that one, huh? So much of how we glorify God is in our attitude. How often has God, thank you, Manny, how often has God been dishonored? How often has God been dishonored? And the name of Christ been tarnished by something as simple as a bad attitude. Gossip, slander, constant griping. I mean, integrity and, at, uh, integrity and uh, bad integrity and, and bad attitude can tarnish our witness for Jesus. On the contrary, a, a humble person who works hard, thinks thoughtfully, lives with integrity and gives extravagantly and points to the, the nature and the reality of who we're imaging. So when we work and rest, when we work hard, when we rest well, people see God's presence and beauty and how we work. This is how we glorify God. Tim Keller says this, we are to be honest, compassionate, Generous, not because these things are rewarding, which they usually are, hence the cost-benefit approach of this, but, this is, but because they're right in and of themselves. Because to do so honors the will of God and his design for human life. Sometimes, of course, that will put us in the minority and even at a disadvantage. So we don't choose to be honest, person of a compassion and integrity as a means to an end. On the contrary, we do it because it's right and, and, and submitting to being an image bearer. See, Christians are to live for God and for others in ordinary ways done with extraordinary excellence. So how does this look? Got a few thoughts for us as we close. The first is to choose to not be ruthless. How do we glorify God? We choose to not be ruthless. See, business can be so cutthroat. 
It can make us into a person who shows no pity, no compassion, no care. But Jesus invites us into a different way. When, when his disciples approached him and said, Jesus, we want to sit on your right hand and on your left. He's like, fellas, this is not the way of the kingdom. The first will be last and the last will be first. And that's just not on Sunday. As disciples, that's just like on Sunday, the first will be last, last will be first. But when you, your alarm goes off at 5.30 on Monday morning, put on the cutthroat jacket and you need to grind and destroy anybody in your path. Like, discipleship is so much more than what happens on Sunday. It affects the entirety of our life. And so we approach work, even if it causes us to lose money. It allows us to approach work in such a way that we're not going to be ruthless like the world might be. Tim Keller shares a story about a woman who worked in Manhattan, and after starting there, she began to move up the ladder. And she made a, a bad decision. He didn't go into the details of what happened, but she made a decision that was a huge mistake. And her boss caught wind of this decision she made, and he took the brunt of the responsibility and actually directly affected the upward mobility within the organization that he had. And so she pulled him aside and had a meeting with him, knowing that she's had previous bosses that, that take the good that she did and put them on her chest. And But when it comes to things that she might have done wrong, they blamed her entirely. And he says, so why did you do this? She said to her boss, and he said this, I'm a Christian. That means, among other things, that God accepts me because Jesus Christ took the blame for things that I have done wrong. He did that on the cross. That is why I have the desire and sometimes the ability to take the blame for others. She stared at him, then asked, where do you go to church? Because that is so unique to be in a community of people that actually want to be different than the way of this world. So we choose to not be ruthless. We Second, we choose to be generous. I mean, how do we glorify God as image bearers? We reflect the one who we're imaging by being generous like the one who's been generous to us. And choosing to give of our time, our energy, our money, not as a means to an end, by simply the fact that we are image bearers reflecting the one who's extravagantly given grace to us. It's grace that motivates us to be generous. It was something that was given to us, not because of our merit, but in spite of it, gave freely, so we give freely, even if we don't get something in return. We can have the ROI for everything that we do in life, and I'm not going to give of myself if I don't get a return on that. What about that is Jesus? That everything we do would only be looking for a return on the investment. But we choose to give generously simply because he's given everything to us. We choose how. How do we glorify God? We choose to be generous. Third, and there's other things we could say, but this is the third one I have for us and last. We choose to be calm and poised in the face of difficulty or failure. We choose to be calm and poised. So much of our life can be a reaction to what other people think about us. And we choose to be calm and poised. Why? Because we have an identity that's other than us. We talked about the, the button and the, the buttons on the shirt last week. It begins by remembering that we are children of God. And our calling flows from that. We're not looking to get from people what they can't give us. And so we are rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. And that allows us to not be looking for people and what they can provide for us. I have a journal that I use pretty frequently. And um, 
at the top of the journal, I have things that I've learned along the way in my short life that I've lived up to this point. And there's two things that I, I think about pretty often. The first thing is this, to, to not, and things I've just learned along the way. Uh, the first, one of the things I've written down at the top is, is, don't let compliments go to your head and criticism go to your heart. And for us, it's so easy for compliments to go to our head and criticism to go to our heart. But man, you are loved by Jesus and you have nothing to prove. And when we root ourselves truly, not just a Sunday morning thing, but before you have that meeting on Thursday and you know you're going to be reprimanded for something, man, take it. Take what you got to take and know that you are loved by Jesus. The way we approach things as followers of Jesus is far different than this world, looking for people to give us what they cannot give us. Second thing I have on there on this journal is don't define yourself by good seasons or bad seasons. And don't allow the highs to get too high and the lows to get too, too low. Jesus said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust will steal and rust will destroy. He said, store up treasures in heaven. But friends, it's the same um, in, in regards to how we interact with people. Don't allow people to define for you your identity and then the next day rob from you. The same praise you're going to get one day is the rejection you're going to get the next. And so we have to be rooted and not just looking for people to give us what they can't. Friends, we have 168 hours in the week. And most of our life is incredibly mundane and ordinary. And it's within that time that we're invited to glorify God with our life in what we do and in how we do it. So as I was tidying things up this morning, just had this sense, like, man, some of you are probably really tired, really weary, really kind of worn out by work and the dynamic, maybe feeling a bit visionless or lacking purpose. And I would just love to take a minute. We do this every blue moon. I mean, if that's you, I'd love for you to stand. I'd love to pray for you. If you just feel like you need a reset on your heart in regards to this, I would love to pray for you. And I would invite for you to just humbly stand and then we can pray together. All right. Okay. Not trying to make it awkward. Cool. I'd love to pray for you. Father, for my friends this morning, I know life is heavy, life is hard, life is confusing. Mundaneness is crippling at times. You can lack vision. and I just ask for a reset. I ask for just a renewal of heart, a renewal of mind, a reminder of who we are and our identity in you. Lord, I pray you'd minister and provide wisdom and discernment and clarity into my friends. See that what we do isn't void of what you're calling us into, and it might be the very thing that you're calling us into. Maybe for others of us, maybe you're calling us to pivot, and I ask that you give wisdom and discernment and what that looks like. Would you provide guidance, care? Fill my friends afresh with your presence and your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.